welcome to the Riot Woman podcast, which features creative conversations with artists, academics, and activists who identified with or were influenced by the punk and Riot Girl subcultures. I'm your host, Eleanor Callett-Whitney, a feminist, writer, and marketer based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of the forthcoming book, Riot Woman, a collection of memoir-infused essays about how Riot Girl has shaped my life. On this show, I talk with a diverse range of guests and invite them to reflect on how punk, feminism, and the do-it-yourself spirit has impacted their adult lives and the work they make. I am so psyched to share this conversation with musician, writer, and organizer Amy Klein with you. I've admired Amy's guitar shredding and songwriting for years, and she is incredibly thoughtful, inspiring, and knowledgeable about building a life and a vision as an artist and feminist musician. In this conversation, Amy and I cover a lot of ground, including how she discovered Riot Girl in the third grade by stealing CDs from her older sister's room, the influence and inspiration of the book Girls to the Front, and how it encouraged her to move from the online community of feminists she built thanks to a blog and tour diary to a real-life community with the Permanent Wave group she founded and helped run for several years. We also talk about how her skills as a performer translated into skills for being an organizer, especially as an introvert, the importance of actually making things happen as an organizer, the power of women's political rage in public, and the value of having difficult conversations in person, as well as the pitfalls and danger of online culture, tech, and the internet. We also talk a lot about the lifetime process of creating art that feels authentic to you. In this conversation, Amy is really frank and vulnerable about what she's learned as an organizer and feminist, especially about confronting racism within feminism as a white woman, so I hope that you'll listen carefully. This episode also has a reading list. I've posted it in the show notes because we reference a lot of books because both Amy and I, as writers, are literary nerds. As I was editing this episode and listening to Amy share her experiences of organizing with Permanent Wave, I thought about what builds movements and social change. So much change actually comes from the small actions and risks we take every day, the ideas we try and the relationships we build. These may not coalesce into large social movements that get written about in the media or talked about on NPR, but they can make a tangible difference in people's lives and have a lasting impact that goes on for years. So I hope this episode is also a reminder to keep going, especially in these times that are extremely tough. On a personal note, listening back to this episode was strange. It was the last episode I recorded in my old apartment, which was destroyed in a fire in early April. And throughout, you may hear sounds like my former upstairs neighbors thunking around or the loud hissing steam heat. Especially touching was the sound of my cat crackers meowing, perhaps the only recorded evidence of her doing so. While I cut a lot of this out of the podcast, I wanted to mention it because listening to the recorded evidence of my home for 10 years was an unexpectedly emotional experience that I didn't anticipate when I sat down to edit this episode. On that note, I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Amy.
so hello we are here in sunset park brooklyn with amy klein who is a musician and a writer and uh amy first do you want to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are yeah that was a great intro i do lots of creative things like music and writing and i've been living in brooklyn for probably 10 years at this point, during which time I have done some feminist organizing. And I've also done feminist activities on the internet in the early days. Nice. What kinds of feminist internet activities? Well, I was involved in a group called Permanent Wave, at this point, it may be eight, seven, probably maybe seven and six years ago. It was a few years ago. And I was actually touring. I was in a band and I had a tour diary where I was using Tumblr, which is actually funny. Now Tumblr, I think, is popular for memes. Among, I guess so. Among the young youngins, but uh, back in the day, I was using it for blogging. So I was writing about a lot of feminist themes and thinking about what it meant to be a woman and an artist as I was traveling around in a van and playing some concerts. So through that, a bunch of people messaged me because they were interested in the things I was talking about and I had also read a book by Sarah Marcus that's called Girls to the Front which was very inspiring it was talking about the riot girl movement and not just the music but the organizing that the people involved did and it was very much like you can do this too organize wherever you are you have all the tools that you need so I decided to have a feminist group with the people I was meeting through the internet. And yeah, actually when we had our first meeting in New York, a lot of people showed up in real life, so that was pretty awesome. We had probably within the three or so years we were doing it, in addition to like a online mailing list and discussions, we had chapters in New York and Philly and San Francisco and Washington DC and Boston. So that was five oh, cities. I didn't which realize a big it was deal. so widespread. That's amazing. Yeah, I actually still feel pretty proud that like a lot of people met each other through that group. And sometimes I'll think about people who are collaborating on projects and like, oh wow, they wouldn't have met each other had this group not existed. And it's nice to realize that like it built a lot of friendships or creative relationships between women in the arts. Yeah, and I think that's cool because, you know, it was, you said, a few years ago now, but it sounds like the impact still exists and still continues to this day. That's awesome. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. It definitely was a huge part of my life in my 20s and it's interesting I hadn't done as much feminist organizing in the past two years but now with Trump and like 
this feeling that we have, plus where I am personally, I feel like I want to use the skills that I've developed to take action as opposed to having this feeling of like, what can we do? We're powerless. So I'm thinking about what I can do now. And yeah, like my friend is organizing an event on March 8th for International Women's Day. Yeah. So I'm helping like with that. And I think, I mean, she's inspired by Riot Grill too. So I think, yeah, it's obvious that this movement has had a, had a huge impact that continues to last. Right? Yeah. And was Sarah's book, uh, Girls to the Front, was that your first exposure to Riot Girl, Or had you listened to the bands before when you were younger? How did you kind of discover this idea and this movement from the 1990s? I was super into it from a young age. I had an older sister who was of the age when it was probably, you know, more appropriate to be into Riot Girl, like <laughs> early teens. And I I remember being in third grade and just stealing CDs from my sister's room. And I was just extremely fascinated by Bikini Kill, particularly with the picture on the cover, which is like, it was a very compelling image, you know, where they're like sitting and they have their legs like in a V and they're wearing kind of little short shorts and they have a microphone. It's very like, I'd never seen an image like that of womanhood or even like teenagehood where they were like in control of their sexuality. And I really liked the music. I also really liked Bratmobile. Something, the music was really simple and it was something I could identify with, that feeling of like, I'm I'm not cool or am I cool? I don't want to be cool, you know? Yeah. So, and I liked polystyrene a lot. It's not Riot Girl, but sort of a similar, like, yeah. oh, bondage of yours, that kind of stuff. My sister also had Liz Fair, who is not quite Riot Girl, but had a similar impact on me from the time I was really young. So I'd always been really drawn to, like, this kind of confrontational or it's hard to say you're being like vulnerable but also in a Mm non-traditional way somebody like let's fair I like that kind of music and that kind of art and I don't think I was getting anything like that in the like small suburban town where I was living so it was kind of like mind expanding like oh there's this whole other world out there like what is that and then I guess like I got more into music and in college I did the there was like a college radio station and that's where I learned more about like queer core I got very into team Dresh, which remains my favorite band and is actually they're sort of tangentially associated with Riot Girl. like they know the same people they may be considered I don't know if it's part of it but Riot Girl and queer core sort of I mean they're very parallel and Donna Dresch it was a little older or is a little older than the kind of Riot Girls and put out a lot of their records on Chainsaw Records. And in the 90s, I know the Chainsaw Records message board was very active. Really? Yeah, for Riot Girl and queer organizing or just discussion of, of punk. So yeah, and it is interesting. Like, I don't think I want to qualify like what is and isn't Riot Girl, but I think it's more just that those 
bands were important to you and like I know like X-Ray Specs and those bands from Britain in the 80s really inspired the Riot yeah. Girls in the 90s. So it's just these like it generations. It is connected. Yeah. yeah. Also, it's interesting. Um, I talked to James Spooner who made the documentary Afropunk about punk and his experiences, but uh, Team Drush is also one of his favorite bands. Really? Yeah. I mean, they are one of the greatest rock bands ever. And I also like that their discography is not that large. So it's one of those bands where everything they did was perfect. Yeah. You know, it's like, like go hard and then go home. But I just saw that they're reissuing some records. That's so, so exciting. <laughs> I bet there will be shows. And I also wonder if they'd play some new music. I saw them, I don't know, they didn't say they're working on new music, but I saw them play... When I was in college, also at the knitting factory, the old knitting yeah. factory. And that was like one of the like most joyous nights of my life. So if they do shows, I would totally be there. But yeah, there's like this whole world of music that I discovered that was related to Riot Girl. Um, I saw La Tigra in college and like also took classes on feminism and queer theory. So that was my first time starting to understand gender in that way but I never really did activism I had bands and I volunteered at the Willie Mae rock camp but it didn't occur to me that I could have my own like feminist group until I read that book oh that's cool yeah. so that's interesting that even though you were like immersed in the music of it yeah from a very young age and it's so interesting too that you as a third grader were like drawn in by that Bikini Kill cover because in a way I think bands like Bikini Kill and Broutmobile were kind of appropriating these tropes of like little girlhood yeah. and playing with it and making it powerful and kind of scary yeah and then here you are like as an actual little girl being like whoa so that's awesome I, I also remember and I think I wonder in my mind if I'm completing like several images of Kathleen Hanna but I remember I was maybe 16 and I was just discovering this and there was an image I think in like the Rolling Stone book of women in rock that my mom had given me for my birthday with like Kathleen Hanna with like slut written on her oh, yeah, stomach. Oh yeah, I know that picture. Yeah, and I think it, she just has a bra and like a skirt or something like that or just a crop top and I just was like, whoa, I'm both terrified and like really want to be her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so that that's interesting that you're very immersed in one and but it took a little longer to come to the organizing piece of it. When did you start uh, playing music? Because you play guitar. You've played in a lot of bands, have a lot of bands. You write music. You're working on new music. But when did you start playing guitar? Um, I started in high school, my freshman year. I had played the violin since I was three. So I think maybe it was a little easier to transition into the guitar because it's similarly putting your fingers on the strings <laughs> I taught myself guitar again around 16 17 but I played the clarinet which does not translate so yeah stringed instruments you have to move your fingers around though yeah you Some have to move your, and I, played, I played piano but yeah yeah I played piano too it was like I always played classical music my parents wanted me to learn classical music and I did which is probably a good you know background for doing other things but you know I got so into in like middle school like listening to my disc man and I wanted to play the music that I was listening to it's just like all guitars so yeah I had played music before but I also liked that the guitar was like a songwriter's instrument and I wanted to do that so 
the guitar was like the first instrument where it felt like it was really mine. Mm. Nice. So I'm sure you've been asked this question like a million times. And this, I think, was also part of what your tour diary grappled with. But you played with bands that were pretty like dude heavy. Um, Mm -hmm. You were maybe the only woman in that band or the only women, woman, excuse me, on stage in a night. So what was that like, you know, coming from this very feminist place, you've done feminist theory, you've like listened to these bands, then you're in this like dutiful rock band. How did you uh, deal with that? Or were people cool, you know? Yeah, I think that um, hmm, there were a few things. One aspect of it was amazing because it was like I'm living my dream. I get to, you know, perform and play music for people and feel connected to people. And the band had quite a few female friends, even though some audiences in some cities would be all dudes. There were a large number of women listening to the band. So um, that was amazing just to feel connected to people and also like improve my musicianship, people playing at a high level. I think it could be lonely at times a lot, being on the road and going for days you wouldn't see any other women. It's one of those things where you're not really aware of your gender so much until you're the only one Mm -hmm. you've seen for a while, which actually I compare similar to like the world of tech startups. Um, (laughs) And it's like little things that are said might make you uncomfortable in a way that they wouldn't if there were some other women around, Mm -hmm. you know? So it can be a little bit isolating in ways. I think that the plus side of being in a band with all guys that's, you know, has an audience is that I was given a platform where I could express myself and people would listen to me. Yeah. That was something that I had not experienced before. Um, And there's all kinds of things that go along with being in a successful band. I realize now, like, there was a PR team. So, like, if I was doing something and I had something to say, people might pick up on that and be willing to, like, pitch an interview with me or you know it's interesting that like there's ways in which it was grassroots like that I was like using a blog but once you realize that other people are like invested in the image or success of a project then it becomes hard to tell what's grassroots and what's Mm not so something that I thought about and they I don't know. Now it's very different. I feel like the music industry has changed and certain bands do still. Yeah, like, I mean, labels still exist and PR still exists. But I think it's even easier, for example, for people to just like put their music out there, put their voice out there and connect with people organically, like the way I see teenagers using social media or whatever it seems that music is evolving in the way that like people create communities you know what I'm saying yeah and that's great to hear that because I think as someone who's you know in their late 30s I'm a little jaded with social media also I work in marketing so like I'm just in it I've worked in that world too (laughs) you know all the all the time but 
I do think that it's great because for me, when I was at that age, I was using like letters and cassette yeah. tapes and AOL Instant Messenger to build that community. And now it's just happening on a different platform. But it's great to hear that because I think sometimes I worry that we can say, oh, these platforms are very democratized, but at the same time with algorithms and kind of pay to play, I also worry like, A, there's yeah. so much content people get drowned out or B, like to get any attention, you have to like have a thousands and thousands of followers, but maybe that's not the case. Like maybe I mean, people I think, can find their people. I think that there are creative ways to do it. Like I've discovered music on Instagram. Like, what? I know Instagram <laughs> is run by Facebook and it's evil and there are algorithms, but like the fact that I can just like follow women who are cool musicians that like I never would have found out about this person, you know, yeah. like otherwise. So that stuff is kind of crazy. But yeah, the other side is true still, like where having a voice or having an audience if you don't have money and you don't have PR it's like a lot of like these platforms are totally pay to play I think and so I don't know I mean and it's also I still feel like there's even though there are a lot more women now even than maybe like five to ten years ago like when I look at at least what quote-unquote like indie or punk music is I see a more like equal representation than even like five or ten years ago in terms of gender but still like I do think that it's harder for like women to get their voice heard for a variety of reasons and those things will persist whether it's like through social media or through a magazine it's still the same forces at work right. you know still sexism yeah but that's great and I have I have heard that that's shifting as well so I'm excited for that observation and I'm like hmm, now I need to go follow cool women on Instagram so let's talk a little bit more about permanent wave because you mentioned that you hadn't organized uh, people before you know you'd been yeah. involved in bands and that in itself is like a lot of organizing but how did you feel first of all how did you translate it from an online organization to actual chapters and cities and then how did you feel when like everyone came together for the first time mm, I think that a lot of the skills that I learned from performance were important like how to be confident in front of a group and how to I'm like a very shy and introverted person so a lot of like the skills that I learned about connecting with people come from music like playing in bands or learning to have confidence on a stage and like for me, there was something related to being a performer and that experience of like having a voice that people would listen to and having that validated perhaps like through performances and music. I think it was easy to like take that persona almost and apply it to the world of organizing. I also felt really strongly, and I still feel strongly, that 
I wanted to do something with the platform that I had been given and not just sit there and like, okay, I'm a visible woman in the arts, so I really feel a responsibility and want to dismantle the inequalities that exist within the arts and make it a fairer world. So I felt extremely driven to do it, even though I was quite shy. It was very, it was a huge learning experience for me. I didn't have training in like being (laughs) a community organizer, was actually quite introverted. I think that when we had the first meeting, I was shocked how many people showed up. I think a lot of people said they were coming and then like they told their friends or friends told friends of friends. It was like in my bedroom. And I remember everyone sitting in a big circle. And um, I couldn't believe that people actually showed up. I was like, oh my God. But I think a lot of people were eager to be part of a group that was actually doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, was how we distinguished ourselves because there were a lot of people who talked about doing stuff but we had like at least one event a month and um, I think we had a lot of people who were very eager to make things happen like they had the ideas already but just having a space of women who were excited about creating a community was very like okay here's the permission you've been looking for to like go do it so yeah, I, it was awesome to see something come to life. Like certain people were very interested in organizing shows. And so we were always having shows at least once a month. And I was doing several protests that I helped organize. Other people were also instrumental in that. I remember we had a protest where my friend came and she just came to check it out. I don't know if she was a member of the group, but she heard about it. And it was part of a larger event. And was it the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case? It may have been that. Or was it another one? It was at, no, the first one was an NYPD officer, I think, was he, despite overwhelming evidence that he had sexually assaulted somebody, he was, you know, let go and... There were a lot of women's groups there, so it wasn't just our group. Um, there were a large number of people. I think my friend said later that it was the first time she ever saw women angry like that in public. And I don't mean angry like, you know, pissed off about whatever's happening. I mean, like, in a very political way. And I think same. I had been to concerts and I'd been to like feminist talks, but I'd never seen that kind of like rage in yeah. in public. So it was very powerful. Definitely for my friend, it was like very powerful. So that was definitely the power of community. That was something that I learned um, and how it affected people, both to be part of a community, to have that permission to do whatever they were already thinking they wanted to do, but they didn't feel like they had permission sort of. And also, I guess, like to help people connect with the anger that we do feel like in a constructive way and do something with it. Okay, so those things I learned. Just interesting, just thinking about anger and rage, of course, and women's rage or people with consciousness's rage, because 
that's been a, quite a big topic since 2016. I mean, yeah, Rebecca I Traster wrote a whole book oh, about yeah, it. Oh, yeah, I got it. I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's great. Really? Worth a read. But it's interesting to think about, like, when we think about punk music, that's sort of a place of anger, but how, even though you'd been exposed to that, it's very different to see it in this very politicized context. So that sounds like it was really galvanizing. Yeah, it was awesome. I do think they are connected. Like, you know, if you're playing music, you may get more comfortable or expressing yourself and um, it may be natural to then express yourself in the public space, like politically. I think that it's still like really hard. I feel like I love punk music, but like if I'm writing a song now, it's still like very hard for me to like connect with the darker emotions because it's almost like if I if I do like it can be like very dark, Mm -hmm. but I still think like it's almost like almost like afraid of it. Then those songs are often interesting. So I'm like, okay, I have to process those feelings, but I still think it's hard. Like there's the women march. The women's march I've been to, they've been like very constructive and and positive, which is great. But there's so much like to be angry about right now. And the like I'm still trying to get in touch with that feeling of like it's okay to be really angry. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, how as an artist do you process yeah. that? But it sounds like that's a process in itself. Yeah, it's really hard. And, like, I think we are conditioned to, like, express or repress the rage and be sad or something like that. But it's, like... Or like, hopeless. Or... Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking with a friend last night about the my process of writing this book, which is called Riot Woman, as is this podcast. And I had been working on the book since 2014, and I knew I needed to finish it. And then there was a few essays, including one on activism, that I just couldn't quite like find the center you know, and finish. And then the election happened, mm-hmm. and I was suddenly like, oh, here it is. And that's not a silver lining at all, but I think it gave me a way to understand and like connect with anger and an understanding of injustice, which was there before the election, but it just like really brought it out in a way that we'd seen, but maybe not at this like extreme level where it's like right in our face all the time, which I guess that could also say like that is a representation of like my privileged position Mm -hmm. that it doesn't have to be like right in my face all the time. But I guess what I'm saying is that for me, it was also a turning point in how I like approached and was able to approach my own writing. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> but it's hard to sustain and it's hard to be in that place all the time of like rage. Yeah. And- I felt really angry to the point of being like physically sick mm-hmm. this summer about the Brett Kavanaugh stuff. Yeah. And there was, it's like very triggering. And there were times that, yes, in order to, just make it through I had to like unplug from the news a little bit and it's like I've heard that from a lot of people right like I mean Trump is and not just Trump but others are demonizing and like dehumanizing so many kinds of people that like you can fight against it 
and you want to stay aware but sometimes the best thing you can do is like self-care and healing and protect yourself yeah yeah so I don't know it's always like a balance right yeah I think I just read Your Art Will Save Your Life by what's that uh it's a book but it is a book by Beth Pickens it's a really small book it has a beautiful cover with it's like black and white and has a red heart on it but she wrote it also after the election and she has this great like checklist almost you can go down where you can ask yourself when you're like spiraling into a hole from the (laughs) news you know like does this directly affect me like know okay like how can I support people who it does you know like how can I unplug and it's really helpful because Mm -hmm. I think sometimes with people of as people with consciousnesses it's like I need to care about this all the time to or I'll like lose my edge or something and it's like no that's actually not helping yeah. the world. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really do anything. No. No. Um so just a little bit more about the group and then I want to talk more about what you're working on now but you were pretty active uh, had chapters in different cities for about 3 years you said and I remember it was great and you had like big potlucks and prospect park <laughs> and really were a community. Um what were some of the lessons you learned as the community grew and about how you sustained it or how it was difficult to sustain that or or any like insight you got Mm -hmm. as it became bigger than your bedroom you know (laughs) yeah I mean I think I never intended to have a community that was quite so large but I also just let everybody join which was you know part of the powers that anyone could participate and we were non-exclusive And the main lesson that I learned probably is that we didn't have explicit policies written down about things like intersectionality. Mm. And I learned that like it's probably related to where I was with my feminism at that time. I was aware of those issues, but I wasn't aware of how important it was for me to understand things like racism probably before I got into feminist organizing. So I think that, like, was our group... In New York, the group was mostly white. I'm not sure. In other cities, I'm not sure. Other cities may be more diverse. But I feel that, like, at one point towards, like, we were having, like, a big music festival, which was actually kind of amazing. We had, like, a three-day music festival, which is, like, on no budget um, in New York. Thanks, DIY Spaces. Um, but I think that, like, like there was an event, and this is actually really interesting. There was a panel, I believe, that may have been associated. Well, it had several, like, celebrities on it. And it was a panel related to feminism and people were discussing it on our email list. And, you know, someone was saying that they felt uncomfortable because like um, it was an all white panel and somebody else was saying like, don't, you know, don't attack my idols. Basically, this panel was awesome. And, uh, and there was sort of like, I would say a debate that turned into like an all out conflict about like what was the group's like 
policy on race were people being racist who was racist and like you know it turned into a big kind of conflict among people that I think turned people off on like all sides which was kind of awful Mm -hmm. (laughs) probably to see something that a lot of people had worked on fall apart but I've also found that like I maybe was forced to think more deeply about what feminism was and like how it applied to people beyond myself, beyond people who look like me, beyond my own experience. And I would say I'm still on that journey. I mean, there's a lot to learn about intersectionality now when we see people like the way that Trump is dehumanizing lots of groups, you know, that it's all connected in a way, like, you know, exploitation of the working class and poor people and dehumanizing immigrants, you Mm -hmm. know, and like, I think it's not an accident that he says things like, grab them by the pussy and demeans women and also demeans people of color you know like the there are ways in which all of these issues are intertwined really heavily in America so I think I'm like still learning a lot about what it means to be feminist and how that might intersect with like having empathy for people who are experiences are really different from mine not just like can I you know organize with women or with white women can I organize with people of all genders and can I work behind the scenes to support a movement that's like led by people of color so that, you know, it's not, I'm not the face or the focal point of something, you know? So I think it's become like a lot more, it's become a lot more nuanced, I think, what, what feminism is. And I think also like, yeah, I was young and naive and I did something and it was kind of sad when the group didn't um, really continue. But I think that like, these debates are part of feminism. They're also part of Riot Girl. Like a lot of people say, okay, Riot Girl was like this very white, like punk movement and there were people of color involved, but it can be seen as exclusive. And so like I connected with a movement of people who, you know, like looked like me, maybe came from a similar background. I was like, this is great. I'm going to do it too, you know? Yeah, um, definitely. So uh, yeah, it's built, but it's also built into American feminism. Like now I don't even know. I think it's a lot broader. I think even these days, like if I look at people in their 20s, like how old I was when I was doing Permanent Wave, people in music scenes, I think, are a lot more comfortable with the idea of like gender fluidity. And it's not really, I don't know if you call it feminism, but it's more of like all genders, right? Let's talk about the gender continuum and and spectrum which I think is awesome there's like debates now among my friends it's like wait to what extent is like gender a useful category Mm -hmm. or like and the fact of like 
I didn't have any answers to questions of like how race and other types of inequality were related to my feminism. I didn't have those answers when I was younger, but also I'm not sure that American feminism, like, or at least, I don't know, like, I mean, the, we're all figuring things out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I think your experience, it's really parallel to this, to a lot of people who organize groups and especially idealistic white yeah. women. You <laughs> I know, know, right? Um, because I had a similar experience when I was 19 and living in Portland, Oregon, and I was like organized with other uh, mostly young women, this radical art collective. And I mean, very similar debates on our like email list and it got pretty mean sometimes. But yeah. I think we also didn't necessarily have the capacity yet to embrace complexity, even if we said we did. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot to learn. And I think like the internet also like maybe I learned a lot about the value of having these conversations in person yes. too. Like it's very easy to talk about difficult subjects online and you can hide behind your email address and maybe I was doing some of that. And there were great things about having the ability to organize online, but I also had the feeling that like there are aspects of like online culture that can contribute to harassment, right? And like, I always think that having the dialogues in person are, you know, it's much more likely to be constructive. I, it was interesting too, one thing I was thinking about as like this would not have existed 10 years ago and like it's also amazing use of the internet. Do you know this YouTube channel called ContraPoints? Oh, wow. Okay, this is no, a really interesting yeah, channel. Me. Okay, I just discovered this because my friend Julia Chan told me. Thank you, Julia. <laughs> and um, it's like, it's a channel that's run by this trans woman. She transitioned, actually, during the time of making her channel. Um, and the channel was originally created, she was in academia and felt frustrated, I think, and decided to apply her philosophy degree eventually and considerable intellect to debating like the alt-right oh, wow. and all like the super conservative like Nazi people online. Like they use YouTube to organize. So she was like, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm going to have my own channel where I tell them what's what, and which is actually very courageous yeah, right absolutely so I think that also the fact that after a few months of having this channel or I don't know how long it was after building an audience with this channel she transitioned which then became like a public transition where the alt-right was like already directly following her channel so there's people who like understand how the internet works and how to use it in all kinds of profound ways this woman has faced tons of harassment i think yes on both sides of the political spectrum and yet her youtube channel is so amazing like she's doing a combination of performance art and because 
it's entertainment in a way. Like she doesn't just have a dry conversation. She's putting on costumes, using lighting, making it like a show you'd actually want to watch and using humor and comedy. And she's also talking about really intellectual concepts, not talking down to anyone. And she's also talking to people um, in a way that's very like non-judgmental. Her goal is really, if you're a teenage guy and you don't know what pronouns are, you're looking for sex advice and you Google something, you could come across her channel and actually learn about gender and like pronouns. Yeah, so she's like, I think it's really interesting to see how the internet evolved and how people are like, you know, still harassment exists for people who are going to have a voice on the internet. Um, And also it's like, how can people be really creative in organizing. I would never have thought of having a YouTube channel, right? But then it's like, this is reaching millions of people, you know? It is so interesting. And I think, I feel like running through our conversation is like how the internet enables, but cuts both ways. And I mean, something I experienced like working in tech, which I don't think I realized until I kind of got on the inside is before maybe I thought of something like Twitter more as a platform, even that's like neutral, quote unquote, even though I know nothing is neutral. And then I realized like, wait, these are companies that are making policy decisions to like enable harassers or to enable trolls or to make it less safe for people who are trans or feminists or people of color like online. So it's really great to see you know the communities that spring up like despite the fact that the internet like the real world and maybe there's not so much of a distinction of that it still can be like yeah a very hostile place yeah um and just that companies i think should do a lot more and just and have the power to do a lot more but they're like no we're a neutral platform and that's like really really frustrating yeah you can't be neutral it's like that's something i've learned there's no way to be neutral. It's learned it from working in tech and from working in business and politically right now. No, you can't be neutral and you never can. And I mean, I learned, right? I I didn't think that, like, for example, I needed to have an explicit policy right. about racism. And maybe, like I said, you know, we're anti-racist, but I didn't know what that meant. Like, I couldn't have written anything like... So I feel like, I guess, like, I can't, like, expect people to, like, assume things. Like, I have to, like, do the work. And, like, if I'm having some kind of group, yeah, I need policies and, like, active ways to support communities. And, like, I think that I have to be a part of creating the solutions. Otherwise, I'm just not challenging any status quo at all so then it's just like I cannot stand it when I see an organization like assume that like oh things are gonna just run themselves and we don't we don't need to you know establish a direct policy that empowers people who may be marginalized because it'll just who needs to do that you know like give me a break you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah I remember back in 2003 or 4 at the Portland Zine Symposium, it was the first time I had come across like making a code of conduct. Yeah. And I, I was one of the organizers and there had been a incident in the community of a older 
a zine maker assaulting and uh, younger women. And, you know, we were explicit, like, you're not welcome here. But then we realized we needed to make a policy. But more than make a policy, I think it's about how you actually live it. And I hate to use the word enforce it, but I do see more, like, especially tech companies and tech events like a code of conduct has become standard, but the question is... So like, they actually do yeah, anything? Yeah, they actually do anything. I wasn't aware of that. I mean, yeah, I feel like I've been in all kinds of dysfunctional places where, like, there are no, like, yeah. standard policies. I'm like, oh, wow, you actually, like, have something that you thought about. But, yeah, the question is then, how is it enforced? Are people holding themselves accountable right. if they actually violate it? Or does it just exist for show and branding? Like, that always bugs me, too. Like, when I see, like... It's always a question, if you look at a lot of like companies' websites, right, a lot of companies say that like, oh, we support diversity inclusion, and then you look at their, like, their... Their executive team. Their executive team, it's all yeah. white men. Yeah, and then it's like, okay, but do you really? Like, yeah. no, you can't really trust that, no, that organization. Can't. Or like you hear about an incident, like, I mean, it's question like, who has power, but a company like Google that has so much power and then like you find out about like decisions that whatever, they they have policies to protect people. They still had tons of sexual harassment in a pervasive way at the top of the company. Yeah, and, and women were being like systematically underpaid. And then they had the workers organized, which is really interesting. They actually had a movement that was like grassroots within Google. So that was amazing. And then it's like, well, is the company really the people in power, are they really going to be accountable though? Like who has decision-making power there? I don't know. And I heard maybe they're trying to prevent workers from unionizing because that movement was like so successful. I don't know what the, I I don't work there, so I don't know the rumors, but it's always a question of like, I don't know how much I can hold other people accountable, but I can hold myself accountable. Right. Exactly. And that's a, I mean, that's a great lesson to come out of all that you've done with. So let's talk a little bit about what you're working on now. Um, <laughs> you mentioned to me you're working on a book and you're also writing new music and you're working on some music videos. So oh, yeah. talk to me about like what your current projects are and maybe some of the influences behind them. Cool. I'm trying to do a few things, so... I am working on a book. I don't want to talk about it too much because I'm worried I'll jinx it, but I do think that in a way it was definitely inspired by some of what I've observed since 2016. And I've been thinking about my life and my childhood and how these issues like gender and race and class affect me and my friends and like the lives that we live in New York. I don't really, I don't really want to just write about my life. It's kind of more like experimental. I'm trying to like use 
scenes and stories. So I am really confused about the genre. Is it like poetry? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Essays? I honestly do not know. But I'm just trying to like process a lot of stuff that happens to like me and my friends and loved ones. So this is after a certain point, you realize you have like 150 pages. It's like, okay, maybe this is a book, right? But it still needs a lot of work. So I don't know what kind of book is going to be. Right now, it's just like me emotionally vomiting, you know? <laughs> that's the perfect way to start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's the first draft. <laughs> and I don't know. Have you read Maggie Nelson? Yeah. Yeah. I, I took a like... class with her. Oh, how cool. Yeah. She kicked my ass. I am sure. It, But it was like in like the best possible way. Like it was amazing. And she also, everything she said was so smart. I was trying to write it down. And then I realized, like, I would have to write down every word that came out of her mouth because, like, everything that she says is so brilliant. So also she introduced me to a lot of readings that I never would have come across because they were, like, more experimental in terms of genre. And, like, she did tons of exercises and she was, like, a really hard critic, which I appreciated. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I love Maggie and Nelson. And, yeah, books like The Argonauts and I had read, like, Blue-Ace too. Blue yes. Those are sort of pioneering in the genre. She has her own genre, you know? Like, she created that. Yeah, so <laughs> cool. I just thought of her, yeah, when you kind of mentioned that genre-bendingness. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, I actually think it owes... Okay, there's, like, a tradition, if you want to look at, like, relate to Riot Grill, like, women and, like, diary or zine. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff is often, like, not people can demean it like oh it's a teenage girl's diary right and then like but the form of writing like that Kathy Acker like she was a huge influence on Kathleen Hanna yeah um and like like blood and guts in high school that's like playing on like a teenage diary or whatever there's tons of ways in which that stuff is very experimental and so are zines right so yeah I mean zines are so I never really thought about this which is silly because I wrote my undergrad thesis on zines oh really that's so cool (laughs) well I felt like a lot of people were doing it at the time but it was about zines and identity formation and Mm -hmm. young women so I want to read your thesis I can Dig it up for you. It might even be on the internet oh somewhere. I, it's from 2005, so I might be embarrassed. But definitely I feel like, for me, zines were such a way for me to find myself and to understand intersectionality in a very concrete way because people were talking about what it meant to be, you know, queer Latina woman or, you know, from a working class background and through the lens of punk often, but not only, but when you think about zines as a genre, yes, it's memoir and it's diary, but it's also like whatever the fuck you want yeah. to put it. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> I love that stuff. And I like a lot of multi-genre work. And I think that stuff is becoming more popular these days. I mean, who knows? You couldn't even relate like this whole blogging thing to... Tazines. I don't know to what extent people still have these like blocks, but there was definitely a time like when I was doing blogging when like a lot of young women were doing blogging and like 
now there's there's still so many personal essays maybe it's no longer like jezebel like some of these sites are less popular than they were like a while ago but like the kind of like somewhat confessional writing yeah i mean it's interesting and this is like something else we could probably talk about for hours but i've noticed there's a certain I call it the medium voice, like this certain confessional tone, but it's also sort of falls into this kind of like content marketing, like I'm the expert voice, like here's like five things I learned and I'm going to tell you it's like those hot takes or thought leadership, these terrible phrases. But I think it comes out of a lot of this, like I think explicitly feminist tradition. So sometimes I get really frustrated to see where it's going. Yeah, I I can't stand that stuff. Basically, I like don't, I don't know, it has a place and I've read plenty of personal essays on the internet. But like, I don't know, one of the reasons I got frustrated with blogging is like, I didn't want it to be performative. Like, I feel like it's really important that I have like a close and pure connection with like, whatever I'm making and creating. And like, maybe if you're writing a blog for a few people it can be easy to keep that connection but like once your blog is like widely read and it's like a performance then it's like oh are you trying to keep up like a certain character or like create a character through your blog like what is the blog and then it's like but I feel like so many I don't know people can tell true stories and they can still somehow be written in authentically you know yes, what I'm saying so like For I sure. see that a lot on the internet and I'm just like oh my god like I don't want to read another one there's so many yeah well good for you for working to transcend it transcending blogging the story <laughs> of my 20s transcending blogging the story of my 20s so good that's that's your that's your not genre bending memoir <laughs> but it's true that a lot of people went from literally having a blog to having a successful like a book deal mm-hmm. like seriously that was a, like a time on the internet it was a time people i know literally had a blog on tumblr they found a theme they found a topic soon that was their niche and they got a book like it's crazy i don't even but i've heard stories like that right and there are also people who got disenchanted like maybe they like They were known as expert on X, Y, and Z. They got a book deal from their blog to do X, Y, and Z. And then a few years later, they didn't care about X, Y, Z anymore. And then like, that's like, it's, I don't understand. The internet's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good reminder as an artist. I think sometimes it can be really tempting to be like, oh no, I need to brand myself as expert of X, Y, and Z and, and follow this trend. But I think in the long run, and maybe I'm just telling myself this, it pays off to be authentic to yourself and your vision and your voice. And maybe you won't get that like instant success that some other people found, but like you'll make an oeuvre that makes sense <laughs> to you. <laughs> I know. I mean, creating something authentic is definitely like a lifetime process. And yeah, the internet is weird because I feel like, especially like as an artist, yeah, I do feel pressure like, oh my god, I, I don't have a personal brand. I What did I do? I messed up. Like, I destroyed my personal brand. <laughs> but oh. I I feel like, but that's like necessary. I destroyed necessary. The, my personal brand, a member of my 30s. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but then it's like, what is that stuff even? I don't know. I think there is a way that it is important, though. Like, 
I read so much funny and validating stuff on Twitter. I haven't been tweeting in like years. I've just been like retweeting, but I go on Twitter all the time. And it's like sometimes yeah, there's terrible stuff on Twitter, but sometimes it's just like this is like what the response I needed to hear from the news. And like it does create community for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important to remember that still exists. And I feel like this big trend in 2019 is like break up with your phone um oh yeah <laughs> like 2018 everyone was doing the whole 30 and now 2019 everyone's Just break like, up with your phone. i'm going off instagram and i totally agree like technology is addictive but i think if you figure out how you can use it in a way that feels like community-oriented and inspiring and not just mindless scrolling it can be really powerful yeah it is another tool so i mean it's great if people can use this tool for good, right? There's definitely people using it just to make money and mm-hmm. like gather data on people and like make discriminatory algorithms. So our other side needs to get up there, right? Totally. And what about the music you're oh, working yeah, okay. on? Um, you recently played some shows. You put out a record a few years ago. Are you working on new record? Like what's yeah. going on now? I finished a record like oh my god maybe almost two years ago and I haven't released it yet I've just been slow so I think that hopefully I'm gonna release it soon and um that record I spent like three years working on it so it's a lot of work and it's really out there I think maybe like experimental and the album has some shorter songs maybe that are like and then some longer songs where it's like what (laughs) so but it is a concept album that I wrote that's about an emotional transition from winter to spring so I was also processing feelings and like going from a darker place to a lighter place and more optimistic but it's expressed through a lot of metaphors and images of like nature and seasons and there's even characters in it because it's like a bit of a concept album. So I made this really out there album that I spent three years working on, but it was really fun and hopefully brought me to a new place artistically because that's a really long time. I'm not talking about spending three years writing the songs. I'm talking about spending three years working in a recording studio. Like I wasn't going every day to the recording studio. Like obviously I was like, working and stuff so I would just go to Philadelphia which is where the studio was I would go there like once a month and then like we'd have a few months off and then I would go it was like my vacation I would go to Philadelphia for a day or two so you know instead of like recording the whole album in like two or three weeks or whatever I did it over three years one day at a time and were you doing everything yourself were you going with a band or did you have people come in and work with you I did like this was the most myself that I ever put onto a record just because it was so much work and it took so long. Yeah, my friend Colin Brooks, who I've been playing with for a long time, he played the drums and our favorite Aileen Brophy played the bass on all except one track. And I think that like, yeah, it was like basic tracks I did in a few days with the, um, I don't know, a day or two, two days with the other musicians. And then everything else for the next like 
three years was just me going to the <laughs> studio. It's amazing. And then the other person who was very involved uh, was the guy whose studio it is, Jeff Ziegler, who was really great to work with. And he did recording, but he also had like a huge impact on the sound because he's sort of a master of atmosphere and ambience and I wanted to this record obviously I it's not like a punk record like it maybe there's parts that sound like punk or kind of like garagey or trashy but it's like it's more like I wanted to create atmosphere and have like sonic worlds that are really deep around all of the songs. There's like tons and tons of parts and like tons and tons of layers on every track. And he did a great job. And I actually learned a lot from him about like creating the atmosphere and getting the mixes right. So yeah, I went from like a few years ago, my idea of doing a record was like, you do it as fast as possible and you only have two days to go to the studio and you only have a few hours and then like, that's it. And now it became this like obsessive like <laughs> recording process. It's never over, maybe too obsessive. Right. But yeah, definitely a learning experience. And that was cool. That's awesome. Well, I hope we get to hear the record soon. I know it can be hard to release things like that in the world when you are uh, have been working on it for so long. So just to wrap up, I thank you so much for sharing so much about your experiences playing and touring in bands, organizing, writing books and music, and just existing as someone who works in this crazy world. <laughs> um, and I'm just curious, I always like to ask this, and I know everyone's experience is different, but what advice would you give maybe a younger version of yourself or young women out there who are interested in playing in bands or organizing in their community? Like, what advice would you want to give them? Mm, okay, I think I have two pieces of advice. One of them is trust yourself and your instincts. Gut instinct means a lot, and I think a lot of times... If you feel pressure, social pressure, you're being marginalized in some way, you may be in situations where you may need to discount your instincts in order to get through or survive or, you know, but those feelings that you have deep down are really important for being who you are and being a artist. And I think the whole thing for me trying to be like express something and make art that is resonant is like just getting closer to what the deepest feelings in me are so that's like the first thing and then yeah because it doesn't have to be so hard like people think like oh you have to be a great musician in order to be a band not really you just have to like know what you like like the record that I was doing was just like oh like I could just get a feeling like when the song sounds right even if I don't know anything about like all these pedals or effects like I'll have a feeling that it feels good when I, I like it and that's good that's what I'm trying to make you know that's all it is okay the other thing I would say is that like those like experiences can feel really like lonely like if it's like a strong feeling or a crazy feeling or I mean it might feel crazy because it's like really feels extreme or it feels like a lot at least in my life I've thought like oh I'm the only one who has x y or z feeling and inevitably like as soon as like I express it or tell that to somebody they're like 
oh, but like, I feel similarly, or that reminds me of something that happened to me, or like, so maybe that's also part of like trusting yourself and your experience, like, is if you can have like the, the initial leap of faith to tell that story or communicate that emotion, other people are going to relate to it and you don't have to be like alone with those feelings, especially the uh, most difficult ones. So that's my advice. Thank you. And that goes back to the vulnerability we talked about at the oh, very yes. beginning and with artists like Riot Girl artists and Liz Fair expressing deep feelings in ways that are really relatable and I think, you know, inspired us. So thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate it. And I will put links to the different projects you mentioned in the show notes. So thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks. This was fun. Thank you again to Amy for taking the time to talk with me and to you for listening to this edition of Riot Woman. You can find Amy on Instagram at amytiger and her music at amykleinsongs.bandcamp.com as well as via the Don Giovanni Records website. For more information on me and this podcast, you can visit eleanorcwhitney.com slash podcast, where I've also included links to Amy's projects in the show notes, as well as our reading list. While you're visiting my site, I'd love it if you signed up for my mailing list. You can also follow me on Instagram at killerfemme. The song Half Lie by Talene Kali is our theme music. You can hear more of her work and support her at talinekali.com. Finally, if you liked this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It means a lot to me and helps others discover the podcast. Thanks, and until next time.